When I came into the office this morning, I turned on my computer and a little box flashed on that said, update me. I'm not an updater. I hate updating. So I clicked, remind me tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow morning, what will I do? Remind me tomorrow. But I've discovered sometimes you have to update. Your, your hand is forced by the technological powers at B. I mean, you're, you'd say you need to make a, a quick transfer. Just hypothetically speaking, one of your kids needs some money. And, and you're at a traffic light, and of course, you know, you look at your phone then, but you're trying to transfer the money and it says update, or, and you can't, do, so you, sometimes you're forced to update. I don't like to update. I mean, I hate to update so much that my Apple products don't even have the bite taken out of it yet. That's how much I hate updating. But sometimes you have to update. You just have to. You have to bring your technology and bring all that up to speed. What we've been trying to do the past several Sundays is to have an update. Primarily, we've been seeking to update our understanding about identity. Your personal identity, my personal identity, what it means to be a person, what it means to be a human in 2022, and how that has been shifting and changing and evolving, if you would, for many, many decades now. A lot of the controversy we see in our country when it comes to politics and culture and all these many issues go back to the roots of identity. Identity, who am I, who are you? Now the title of today's message, if you like titles and stuff, is called Mark's Madness. Not March Madness, Mark's, M-A-R-X, Madness. Now for answers, we've been looking into the book of Ephesians. Let's say E together, Ephesians. Let's try that again. Ephesians chapter number five, verse 31. Paul writes, and he's quoting from Genesis three here, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So he's using the analogy of marriage to apply to the church and to Christ. However, verse 33, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So this is God's basic design for us and for the family. God made us, who am I? I am someone, you are someone made in the image of God. Your maleness or your femaleness is a reflection of the character and the very nature of God. When Adam saw Eve the first time, he said, wow, right? And his name in Hebrew is Ish. And the name for a woman in Hebrew is Isha. So it was like, ah, Isha, right? And the two became one. And they have kids. And that's the first family. That's God's standard, if you would, of what a family should look like. But over the past several decades and really centuries, we've seen an erosion of the family in our culture. Our families were designed by God to give us a sense of security, a sense of purpose, and a sense of identity. 
I know who I am because I know my family. I know my family's name. I know my place in this world. There was very little mystery and ambiguity when it came to the question, who am I? But wow, things have changed. Times are changing, as Dylan said in the 60s, and times are chaotic today. Now, the pressure's on you today, not me and the glass board. So when you came in, you should have received, everybody get one of these little diagrammies things here? Did y'all get one? Everybody get one? Yeah, every, okay, if not, you can look, get one as you're leaving or look on to your neighbor or you can go to the YouTube and it'll be on there, what's that? But right, what this is right here, this is kind of a, a, I think, a nifty little way of looking at how our identity has evolved, at least people in the Western civilization, over many, many years to get to a point to where we are today, okay? So we start, if you have a pen or a pencil, you need to fill this out. Starts with Plato in 400 BC. Plato is by far and away the most influential philosopher in Western civilization. Someone said, all of philosophy are merely footnotes on Plato, the philosopher, not the clay. So you have Plato in 400 BC, then skip to 1600, you have Descartes, and that's spelled D-E-S-C-A-R-T-E-S, but it's pronounced Descartes. Descartes, he was a very important seminal thinker when it comes to identity, and we'll talk about that in a second. 1700, remember, we have Jean-Jacques Rousseau, R-O-U-S-S-E-A-U. Rousseau said this, that man is born free, but is everywhere he looks is in chains. So he was looking to liberate us from the chains of society and rules and norms and family and God and all kinds of things. Then 1800s, we'll go back to that in a second. We'll skip over to 1900. We looked at Sigmund Freud last week. Freud was a psychoanalysis. He's the father of modern psychiatry. He talked about really how the self and our identities have now been sexualized. 1960, major shift in our society and culture. We'll talk about that next week. And in 2022, there's a very important and influential person and thinker and philosopher and worker, and that is you, Y-O-U. So out of these, these epics, if you would, these time periods, we can see our concept of identity evolving. So really before Plato, all the way up to Descartes, the idea was that there is a God Therefore, I am. You know, the fact that there's God or objective reality outside of me is a given. Therefore, I am responsible to align myself up with God or up with, as the Stoics said, this logos, this reason. Now, when Descartes came in in the 1600s, he shifted it. He changed it to say, no, God is not the starting point. I am. And I think, therefore, I am. Thereby changing the game radically by the way we look at identity. I can establish my own identity by my thoughts, okay? Now, there's a whole lot more to Descartes than that, but that's just, we're looking at it through the lens of identity. 
And then you had Rousseau who said, you know, the reason we don't know who we are, the reason we can't is because we can't fully express ourselves. We can't express ourselves mentally. We can't express ourselves emotionally. We can't express ourselves sexually. And that's because of society. It's because of laws. It's because of the nuclear family. It's because of God and the Bible. And for man to be truly free or women to be free, we've got to be able to freely express ourselves. And then in the 1900s, you have a change with Freud. And so Freud really emphasized sex and sexuality starting way back in embassy, if you would, and basically said this, I feel, therefore I am. So now I am my feelings. If I have a certain feeling or a certain emotion, then that is real to me and it better be real to you. And if you don't think it's real to you, just like it's real to me, then you are hateful, bigot, and some type of phobic, right? And that's kind of the world we live in today. So we've gone from having a solid sense in some way, not perfect, but a solid sense of identity of who I am. God is, therefore I am. We've moved to that inner state with Descartes, the psychological state. I think, therefore I am. And now today we're way past Freud really. And I feel and I have these desires. Therefore, I want to be identified by my feelings and my desires, or if you would, my sexual expression. And that's kind of where we are today here in 2022. Now, the consequences we looked at last week uh, of this change has been, first of all, the family has been fragmented. The family has been greatly fragmented in our culture, not just going back to the 60s, but even before that. We, we have a fragmented family. Freedoms, some basic freedoms, as we'll look at next week, are basically forbidden. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion are in great peril, not just in the U.S., but also in Europe. Our future is frightening. When you look at the, the confusion, the chaos, the division, the vitriol and our dialogue, uh, we have a frightening future. So have a nice day. And one of the main influencers of all of this, in my opinion, confusion and chaos as it relates to identity, the family, as it relates to even the politics, if you would, in our culture today, one of the main influencers, or if he, he maybe he is the main influence, would be a German philosopher who lived in the 1800s, if you're writing all this down, by the name of Karl Marx. Karl Marx. Karl Marx was German, but he spent most of his life in England living and writing in a library, which would eventually be his you know, big work, which is called the Communist Manifesto, who he wrote with a guy by the name of Engels. Now, what's interesting about Marx was that he wrote about, you know, the, the common laborer and how he wanted to liberate the workers of the world. And at the end of the Communist Manifesto, the, the last line is, workers of the world unite, right? That was not Dwight Schrute, that was Karl Marx. And so, and so you know, uh, Marx's idea was to bring a sense of liberation of people who he felt were, had been put down or oppressed by the powers that be. He was for the workers, for the laborers, though check this out, Karl Marx never had a job his entire life, <laughs> never earned a wage. Um, he never stepped foot in a factory or got involved with people who were working the field who he supposedly represent, represented. His family was a big hot mess. He uh, 
was cruel to his wife and to his kid. He had an affair with um, one of the house servants, this man of the people, and he never paid her a dime. That illegitimate kid out of wedlock who he never acknowledged. He was a narcissist. Uh, he was an egotist. He was anger, angry and full of rage. He did not believe in God, but he very much believed in himself and had an incredible knack and a gift for turning a phrase. That's a quick, quick look at Marx. Now, Marx's philosophy was really kind of a, Marx's philosophy was to look at society, especially through the lens of economic opportunity or inopportunity. So he divided societies among those who had power and those who didn't have power. He said those who have power are the oppressors and those who don't have power are the oppressed. So he looked at society through the lens of oppress oppressor. And he looked for that anywhere he could find it, especially economically. And his idea was if you could abolish uh, private property, if you could abolish capitalism, then there would be a revolution of the proletariat, the poor, they would take over and there would be economic harmony and unity among people, a type of atheistic, materialistic utopia, if you would. Now, here's the deal, Marx's, Marx's idea his economic philosophy to level the playing field, to make everybody equal, has been tried in countries around the world, both the Western countries and Eastern countries, and it has failed miserably to deliver the goods. Instead, it has led to starvation, over 110 million people killed, thrown into gulags, camps, you name it. The Soviet Union failed. China is now a communist state. Uh, Venezuela failing because it adopted Marxist uh, policies. Cuba, uh, Vietnam, you could go on down the line. One of the great things about living in Houston is, you know, you probably have friends or work with someone or go to school with someone who lived through some of those communist Marxist regimes and they can tell you how great it was. When everything was equal and there was no hierarchy whatsoever. No, within a Marxist or a communist regime, the elites will always be well-fed, they will always have the goods, and then everyone else will be poor. Equal, poor, but happy. It's never worked. And it's led, instead of equality, it's led to suffering and death, listen, every single time. So one of the Marxist area that he saw that he honed in on as oppressive was the nuclear family. He wanted, he and Engels wanted to dismantle the nuclear family and to dismantle God's design for the family. He compared the nuclear family to public prostitution. And a part of his whole project was to create dissension in the family. So when uh, Marxist policy started to uh, come into vogue under Lenin and the Soviet Union, one of the first things they did was to change their divorce laws so men could divorce their wives and spouses quickly. So Marxist philosophy, as it applied to the family, he saw the family structure as something as oppressive. The father, the mother, the family structure, you have to live under that, the laws of God, as something oppressive and something to be abolished. So Marx today wields immense influence in our world. 
not just in China and Venezuela and Cuba, where his political policies have been in place, his economic policies, but where people have taken his uh, grid of looking at the world through this oppress-oppressor dynamic and have applied it to so many areas in the Western world that it's causing so much chaos and so much conflict. It's really hard to measure. We'll look more at that next week. But Marx, make no, uh, make no doubt about it, has been incredibly influential, I believe, and other thinkers as well, to the destruction of the family. And here's what is, um, it's not interesting, it's simply a fact. You know, th these folks, whether you're talking about Karl Marx or Rousseau, or you're talking about, um, you know, Freud, or next week as we look at critical theory, as you look at critical theorists, they're, they're very open in their, in their beliefs. They're very open in their dogma, their doctrine, and how they want to transform society. It's not like some crazy QAnon theory, okay? This, this is real, and you can go to the original sources. You can read their works. You can go to their websites, watch their interviews. They're very open about their Marxist ideology and what they want to do with it. So it's not like, you know, I'm sitting here reading in to Marx and Engels and Freud. No, they were very, they wrote volumes and spoke all the time about what they believed, especially when it concerned to the family and freedoms. And for some reason, they felt it necessary in order to make room for their sexual expressions, they wanted to somehow outlaw the normal to make room for the abnormal. So let's marginalize at first. Let's try to destroy the nuclear family or in our context, God's version of the family so we can make room for other versions. And I'll put families in quotes in different ways of expressing ourselves and our sexuality. So we find ourselves where we are here today. What do we do? What, what is the, what's the antidote, if you would, or part of the antidote, the solution, if you would, to what I call Mark's madness. Well, let's go back to our book. Let's go back to Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter five again. Let's look at the first two verses, okay? First two verses. Ephesians five, verses one and two. It says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, one of the ways we can help, one of the ways we can make a difference in our own lives and our own families is to walk in the way of love and to ask God for his help. God, help me to love others the way you loved us. Help me to love others the way you love us. Help me to love my spouse. Help me to love my kids. Help me to love my friends with this type of sacrificial love. Show me, God, how to love others in the same way that you loved us. And that is not easy. That's not easy. It's not easy to love others in the way that God loved us. But God calls us to that higher level of love. God, help me. That's our prayer, my prayer. Help me to love others the way you loved us. Now, what does that look like? Does that merely mean that 
Love is love and the wheels are off and there are no boundaries. No, look at verse three. He writes, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So God in his graciousness comes down to our level, sacrifices for us, dies again that we can be forgiven, that we can live a different kind of life, a holy life. Holy means separated, right? It means we now have a new focus in life. Our focus is to please and honor God, right? We're focused like, like an Olympic athlete when they're training for the Olympics, man, nothing else matters. <laughs> they put aside almost everything else in their life because they're focused on making the team or focused on winning that gold medal. That's what holiness is. It's a type of Olympic focus that we have on God and serving him and honor him. And in this case, it involves purity, purity. Purity to, to follow God. And God, my, my, our prayer would be, God, help me to love purity the way you love purity. We live in a world and a time that, man, there is temptation for greed and immorality and impurity everywhere we look. We live in a time and a culture that is not only allowing for all types of, if you would, creative and bizarre expression sexually, but they're also to be applauded in our society and culture. And if not, then you can be accused of hate and all kinds of things. It's a strange world. It's a strange world. But God doesn't call us, he doesn't call me or you to cave in to the whims of society. We're not to be swayed by the atheists like Freud and Rousseau and Marx. We're to be influenced by him, by Christ and by his word. And he calls us to live a pure life. So my prayer is God help me to love others the way you loved others and God help me to love purity the way you love purity. And finally, God, help me to love the family the way you love the family. All families are a little bit funny, aren't they? A little bit quirky. My older brother, Ed in Dallas, gave me a plaque that I have somewhere that says, remember, everyone else thinks we have a nice, normal family. All families are difficult. All families are challenging. But we have to love the family that we've been given, you know? It's like, it's, it's, it's not like we're playing poker here and we got this hand and we go, well, I like these cards, but can I trade in this brother, this, no, I'm kidding, this step, no. You gotta play the hand that's been given to you. And we have to love the family that God has us in. A lot of us are in divided families and fragmented families. I know that. I have, my wife and I have a blended family, modern day Brady Bunch, right? It's challenging, but it's great. It's wonderful when we start loving each other the way Christ has loved us. And we love the family the way God loves the family. 
And that's the good news. God meets us wherever we are in life. God meets us there. And God, God calls us, I think, to a, again, a higher level of love. He calls us to a higher level of commitment. He calls us to a higher level of sacrifice. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to take up your cross. I like what Vody Bauckham said, and, and Vody's really spoken out on so many issues so well. Vody said this, he said, let's face it, living in accordance with the word of God is not the default position for most Christians. It's much more easier to drift along in the milieu of mediocrity than it is to swim upstream. We either win the culture one family at a time or we continue to lose the culture one family at a time. Who, who, who are we to look to in these, these times, these, these crazy times, these chaotic times, these tumultuous times, who are we to look to as a guide? I've just been asking that question for the last several months. God, who, who is it that we can look to? Who is it that perhaps God in some way we can relate to? And as I was denying the update this morning on my computer, it like hit me, you know? Hit me like a ton of bricks, as the cliche goes. Who is it? It's Daniel. We're to, we're to dare just a little bit to be like Daniel. Daniel was taken out of his country, put into exile in Babylon to work for a pagan leader. But Daniel did not compromise his convictions. Daniel did his job for the king. He went along with the customs. He went along with the culture until it got to certain places. And Daniel goes, nope, I'm not going there. And his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, oh, nope, we're not going to go there. They were involved in culture. They were involved in politics. They were influential men in their culture. But they realized in some areas, hey, we've got to say no. We've got to set boundaries. We've got to be men of conviction and men of courage, even if they throw us in the fiery furnace, even if they throw us to the lion's den. We can't crumble. We can't cave in our convictions because the world is changing around us. We've got to hold on to our convictions with compassion and with courage as we follow God in the world in which we live. The cure to Mark's madness is to dare to be a Daniel. God, show us to love, show us to pray, show us how to live like he did.